Our sermon today will be taken from James chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. Uh, this is the word of God. Uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that the, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, and able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouth of horses so that they obey us, uh, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are, and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, where, where, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a, wet, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among, among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creatures, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh waters. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Albert. So, friends, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you know that we are currently in the process of going through uh, the book of James. And a quick recap of what's been happening. So far, we've seen that James' main reason for writing this book is because the church was struggling. There's a lot of hurt going on in the church. Why? Many reasons, but the particular reason that he does emphasize in his book, the church was struggling and hurting because there's a lot of division going on. There's a lot of infighting going on in the church. Okay, why are there a lot of infightings going on in the church? Well, there are a lot of reasons. We saw a few of them in the past three weeks. One reason we saw in the past few weeks of the division is that many people at church were quick to anger. Another reason of why there's a lot of infighting and division is because we saw that people in the church were being partial, meaning that they're treating people based on how rich they are. They're treating people better if they have finances. They're treating people worse if they're not financially well off. Another reason of why uh, the church had a lot of infighting and division at the time is because, as we saw last week, many people at the church were not living out externally the faith that they claimed to believe internally. They weren't doing it. They weren't living it out. They claimed to believe and follow Christ, yet their lives didn't show it. And today in our passage, James gives us yet another reason of why there's a lot of fighting and, and division and infighting in the church. And that's because many people in the church at his time were not being mindful in how they spoke. They weren't being mindful by the way they use their speech. They're like children that, that keeps playing with fire flippantly because they don't know just how quite serious fire is. So how would a loving parent help this child grow in mindfulness in regards to fire? Well, the parent would show them just how serious of a thing fire is. And that's exactly what James does here in our passage. He shows us just how serious our words can be. How does he do this? He, he points out quite a few things about our speech, about our words, uh, things that perhaps 
we have not yet really thought about, things that perhaps we didn't really uh, see about our words and, and, and its effects on people. And I think we can break down this passage to five points, five things about what James wants to teach us about our words, okay? One, it's volatile. Two, it can shape paths. Three, it displays our sin. Four, it has actual real power. And five, it can be redeemed. It's volatile, it can shape paths, it displays our sin, it has actual real power, and it can be redeemed. All right, let's, let's begin. Point one, our words, it's volatile. Okay, if you start off the passage, read verse one. It, it sounds like James' purpose there was to rebuke teachers or, or pastors at church, right? Pastors only. But that's not the case. He, he's actually trying to rebuke all Christians about the dangers of, of harsh words. Take a look at verse one with me. Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, you see that? Notice who James warning here. James isn't warning those who are already teachers. James is warning his brothers, Christians, those who are not yet teachers but are thinking about becoming teachers. You, you see that in the passage from, from verse 1? But, but his target audience goes even beyond that. He's not just rebuking teachers. He's not just rebuking people aspiring, wanting to be teachers. He's also speaking to every single Christian about the potential danger of words. Where do we see that? Let's continue in verse 1. Now, many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, think about that. Why would teachers be judged more strictly than non-teachers? There are many reasons, but the one reasoning James is trying to point out here is in verse 2. Teachers we judge more strictly than non-teachers, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, says he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is saying we all have a hard time bridling, controlling our speech. We have a hard time taming our, our speech. Words just kind of slip out of our mouths. Our tongue is a volatile thing. In other words, James is saying talking, friends can be risky business, right? You start a conversation wanting to say one thing, you open your mouth, it may start off going as you planned, but after a while, mid-speech, you end up saying a lot of things you planned on not saying. You end up saying a lot of things you wish you never had said. It's volatile. Talking can be risky business. Now, James is saying here, think about it. If you want to be a teacher at church, Guess what you're going to have to be doing a lot of? Talking. <laughs> you're going to be doing a lot of talking. The more you talk, the riskier place you put yourself in because talking is risky business. The more you talk, the higher percentage you have of messing up. You really want to put yourself in that position? You really think you're mature enough to do that? Much talking at church and not stumble in your speech? A lot of you are looking at me saying, I don't know, Tez, you're doing all the talking. <laughs> so, so yes, of course, there is a part of it where James is rebuking, warning the teacher. There is a part of it where James is warning people who want to be teachers, as we've seen in the verse. But also there's a sense in J James is just warning the generic Christian of the reality of how volatile words are in general. That's, that's what we're getting here. And we all instinctively know this to be true. Don't we? You know, you're in a conversation, somebody says something that offends you, that hurts you, that rubs you the wrong way, and you can, you can just feel the heat is just building up in your heart, in your belly, right? And in those moments, what do we often say to ourselves? 
at least I do. Just, just don't say anything. Just don't open your mouths. You know, just, just stay, stay quiet. Just don't. Don't you have that reaction too sometimes? Why, why do we have that reaction? Why do we do that? I think because instinctively we, we're just unsure. We're unsure of what's going to come out the second I activate this thing here. We just don't know. We, you know, and that's exactly what James is trying to point out. Look, we're not as in control of our speech as we like to think we are. It's kind of like our tongue has a mind of its own. You enter into a hard conversation. Before the conversation, you're telling yourself over again, I'm not going to say anything mean this time. I'm not going to say anything bad this time. I'll, I'll just say everything good, and then I'm really going to watch my words. And the next thing you know, you're saying 90% of the things you weren't planning on saying. <laughs> you're going, what in the world? <laughs> I really was trying not to. Someone tells you a secret, and they ask you, of course, when somebody tells you a secret, what do they say? Don't tell anybody else. And you say, I can control my tongue. I will never tell this to another soul. You know, a week later, you meet up with a friend, and you're fighting the urge to tell them, and you're just, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to tell them, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself saying, I have to tell you a secret, and it just kind of comes out. And of course, you tell them, please don't tell anybody, and what are they going to say? I promise I will control my tongue, and the cycle just continues. Happens a lot in counseling, too. You know, you talk with someone for an hour, an hour and a half, and you find themselves repeating phrases, repeating words a lot. And a counselor often would want to point that out lovingly to help the person identify an issue in their hearts, right? So you would say, you know, this is not a real name of anybody I've counseled, just Melissa. Melissa, in the past hour and a half, you've, you've said the word lonely five times. It, is that how you're really feeling in your marriage? John, you, you've said the word worthless six times in the past hour. Is that really how you're feeling? And very often the person you tell would, would respond and say, huh, I did say that. That's weird. I didn't thought I felt that. I didn't know I felt that. Your, your tongue very often says things you didn't plan on saying. It very often says things you're trying not to say. And it very often says things you don't even realize you're saying. One of the reasons of why we're not mindful with our tongues, I think James is trying to point out here, is because we're still under the delusion that we have control over it. We think we have control over our tongue. Because of that, we become lazy, we become uh, non-intentional in how we use our words, and we end up becoming hurtful and unkind. We don't live in that delusion. We don't have that much control over our tongue. Some of you here, you're, you're saying, okay, but they're just words. They're just words, right? The saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Let's see what James has to say about that. Let's continue in our passage in point number two. Words can shape paths. James here is saying, words may not seem like a big deal to you, but they are. Let's go to verse three and four. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So in this next part of the passage, James uses two analogies to make his point. A small bit guiding a horse like, like, a, like a piece of food and a small rudder directing the ship. Okay? In both analogies, there are smaller objects controlling larger objects. 
Now, it's quite obvious the smaller objects here, the bit and the rudder, is referring to the tongue, right? A small part of our body. But what is the larger object referring to? The horse and the, and the, and the ship. What's that referring to? Well, one thing it's referring to is other people, which is maybe a little obvious, and, and you find it to be true. You know, our words can redirect the lives of other people. And quite significantly at that, I don't know if you know, in, in 2014, an NFL quarterback, NFL's American football, one of the players um, caught physically abusing his fiancée. It was caught in an elevator camera. And the footage showed he was beating her up pretty badly until she was on the ground. And what was worse is that when the elevator door opened, well, it's all bad, but what made it more intense when the elevator door opened, he, he just grabbed her by the hair and dragged her out of the, of the elevator. And when that video came out to public, um, you know what the abused woman did the next day after the video came out? She married him. And people were, were confused, they were shocked. What, you married him the, next, the very next day the video came out? Why would you do that? But what was even more confusing is what she said, her public statement. And this is what, what she said when people asked her about her decision. The abused woman said, I deeply regret the role I played that night. And you're thinking, wait a second, you're blaming yourself for what he did? You think you're the problem? You think you did something wrong? And everyone's just so confused, what's going on? And her words, what it did is it triggered a lot of women who were also abused to start sending emails and letters to the NFL, right, to this, the American Football Association about their own stories of abuse in hope to raise awareness in the NFL and, and, uh, of abuse and hope to get this person penalized more than he was. And two professors collected all those letters and all those emails for the sake of documented research. And, and did you know, based on all those emails and all those letters, the top reason out of all these thousands of women, the top reason of why abused people stay with their partner, here are the two, two most common quotes in these letters of why they stay. And it's not exactly the same sentence, but, but this, is, this is the general uh, um, theme of, of the words. The top two uh, quotes is, from, this is quoted from the research document directly woman would say, he made me believe I was worthless and alone. That's where they stick around. Or another one is, I felt I had done something wrong to deserve it, which is exactly what that lady said. The two reasons why they stick around, this is the two most common reasons. Um, and you think about that, what weapon do you think the abuser yielded? What weapon do you think the abuser used to make these women believe that lie? What weapon does he have to be able to twist the narrative in such a way to make these women feel like it's their fault, make them feel they're worthless and they're to be blamed? What weapon do they use? Their words. Words are powerful. Even abuse victims. Abuse victims are imprisoned by their abusers. How? Usually behind the bars that are made out of words, sculpted by great oratory and argumentative skills. It's a powerful, life-changing thing. It can affect others, it can direct their paths. But here's what's interesting also. The horse and the ship here, many commentators agree, refer to something else as well. Yes, it refers to our ability um, in redirecting the path of the hearer, but it also refers to the ability the words have in redirecting the path of the speaker. 
In other words, the horse and the ship here is not just the person hearing the words, it's also the person saying the words. And if you read the book of Proverbs, it's all over the book of Proverbs. Chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 26, other parts of Proverbs talks about um, uh, the, the word that we speak affect us as well and, and our paths as well. And we know this to be true as well. How many of you have had romantic relationships redirected because of your choice of words? How many of us have had relationship between family members redirected for better or worse because of our choice of words? How many of us have had careers redirected because of our choice of words? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Think again. Nothing can be further from the truth. Your tongue is a small member of your body, but it redirects whole ships. Be mindful, therefore, of how you use them. That's the point James is trying to hammer in. And, and he's hammering it again by stating a similar third analogy in verses 5 to 6. And we're going to get to that, but before we get to that, I want to point out that the analogy James shares in verses 5 to 6 is, is similar to the one he shared just now in verses 3 to 4 that we just studied, the two we just studied, in that a small thing can affect a bigger thing. But there's a slight difference in this third analogy found in verses 5 to 6, uh, which leads us to our third point. Our words can display our sin. So let's move on in the third analogy in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Now, the difference between this analogy and the previous two, although they both had small things affecting bigger things, in the previous two analogies, the tongue is only implicitly connected to the smaller objects. It's only implicitly connected to the bit and the rudder. It doesn't say the tongue is a bit or the tongue is a rudder. It's just implicitly stated the tongue is those, are those things. But in the third analogy, James explicitly connects the tongue with a small fire. Look at verse 6. It says the tongue is what? Is a fire. A whole a world of righteousness. There's a deeper affiliation that the tongue has with this fire in verse 6 than it does with the bit and the rudder in verses 3 and 4. You see what James is trying to do here? Why is that though? Well, let's continue looking at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That last part, what does it mean that the tongue is set on fire by hell? Stick with me. I don't think it means uh, that in the future, the tongue will later be punished by the fires of hell. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Why not? One, it's kind of odd to just locate the punishments of hell to one particular part of your body. Th that's an odd way to say it. But what's more convincing, I think, number two, remember who James is talking to. Who is he talking to? My brothers, meaning he's talking to Christians meaning he's talking to people who have been saved from the wrath of the fire of God's wrath. You see what I'm saying? He's talking to people who no longer will, will experience this because of what Christ has did for them. They've been delivered from God's wrath by grace. So it's hard to conclude that when James says the tongue is set on fire by hell, it's talking to the future punishment, the, the future fires of hell that will later punish the tongue. Most commentaries agree it's rather talking about the fires of hell that currently resides 
in our tongues. The tongue is a fire, you see. John Calvin describes the tongue as a slender portion of flesh that contains a whole world of iniquity. Okay, so, so are we saying that all of my sin is centralized in my tongue? No, the Bible is it's, it's quite clear. When Bible locates where sin is, it usually uses the, the language of the heart. The disposition of your heart is where sin resides. All James is saying here is that our tongue, out of all of our body parts, our tongue is the one body part that is most directly connected to our sinful hearts. That's what James is trying to say. It is a fire. It's really connected. Remember what Jesus said when he rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what James continues in verses 7 to 8. It's so hard to tame your tongue, isn't it? You, mankind, has tamed everything. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky. We've put them in cages. We've caught the great, the great fishes of the oceans. We've done, tamed all these things, but you can't tame your tongue? Why is that? Not because your, your tongue is evil, because your tongue is directly connected to your heart, and your heart, your heart is evil. That's what James is saying. And, and look, I know it's hard to hear that, right? When somebody says you have an evil, uncontrollable, untamable heart, it's hard to hear those things. You don't really want to hear them. But it's just kind of hard to deny that when we have untamable tongues. James is kind of doing a litmus test here. He's kind of saying, okay, you have a hard time believing you have sinful hearts, okay. Can you then promise me from here on out that you will be able to have absolute control over your tongue, meaning from here on out, can anyone here promise that you will never, 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 ever, ever say a single word again that tears people down? Who here dares make that promise? From here on out, every single word you say will only be meant to build people up. Who, who, who dares make that promise? Can anyone here promise that from here on out, every single tiny word you say and how you say it will be able to be used for the purposes of benefiting others and not a single word that comes from your mouth from here on out will be used for the purpose of glorifying yourself or making much of yourself? Who here dares to make that promise? Can anyone here promise that you can control your tongues in such a way that you will no longer manipulate truths, not even a single bit for the sake of selfish gain ever again? Who here dares to make that promise? I, I doubt anyone. <laughs> why? The reason why we don't dare to make such promises is because we realize we often don't have control over our tongues. Okay, so if our tongues are untamable, how can we claim that our heart is okay? It's the litmus test. I remember in, in my college tennis days, someone in my tennis team at college injured his leg, but he really, really wanted to play the next match. So he tried to convince uh, the trainer that he's good. There's nothing wrong with his leg. Everything's fine. And the trainer's trying to convince him, no, you're not okay. You're hurt. There's something wrong with your leg. I can tell. But my friend wouldn't listen. He said, I promise I'm fine. Your diagnosis is wrong. I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. So what the trainer did to convince him is uh, she made this guy uh, run a lap. It's like, okay, you don't believe that your legs hurt? You don't believe there's anything wrong with your leg? All right, prove it to me. Run a lap, just a warm-up lap. 
without falling, without, without hurting. And of course, he did it, and he tried, and he tried really hard, but he couldn't do it. His inability to tame the pain in his leg proved that something was wrong in his leg. Our inability to tame our tongue proves there's something wrong with our hearts. That's what James is trying to say. So our tongue, one, it's volatile. It's volatile. You don't really have that much control over it. Two, it can shape paths. Three, it displays the reality of our sin to the world. And if these reasons aren't enough to convince the church to take their speech seriously and carefully, James goes on to the next point, verses 9 and 10. Shows them how the tongue is not only volatile, does not only shape paths, does not only display the sins of our heart, but it also has actual real power to it. What do I mean? All right. Point four. The, our words have actual real power. Look at verses 9 to 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Now, now James here is bringing back a theme that if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've heard this theme throughout the, the, the book of James, as mentioned in, in chapter 2 as well, that Christians are not living in line with the faith they claim to believe, right? There's a double-mindedness. There's a, there's a duality, incongruency with what you claim to believe and how you're living up your life. The same person worships God, but also hurts other people, okay? But, but notice James' choice of wording here. It's interesting, he didn't say, with our mouths, we worship God and dishonor others. He didn't say, with our mouths, we praise God and put others down. He didn't say, with our mouths, we say good things about God, but bad things about others. Those weren't the words he used. He chose the words, with our mouths, we bless God and we curse others. Blessing and cursing. And that's significant. Why? Because in the Bible, a blessing or a curse has actual power in them. They're more than just empty words. They carry actual weight. Here's an example. In the Old Testament, when a prophet in the Old Testament would bless somebody, or you know, one of the people in the Old Testament would bless somebody, when Abraham blessed Isaac, when Isaac blessed Jacob, something good was actually brought about. Something good that didn't exist before came about. And when an Old Testament prophet curses somebody, something bad happens. It's not empty words. There, there's power, actual weight to it. Something bad happens that did not exist before. Okay, I know, I know it's still an airy concept of how our words can carry actual power. He, here's probably another helpful way to explain the concept more clearly of how words can, can carry power. In the book of Genesis, what does God use to create things? His words right? He said, let there be light, and then light actually came about. They're powerful. They're, they have actual effect to them. Okay, let uh, the seas be collected in one place. Actually happened. Let vegetation grow from the land. It actually happened. There is God's words, in other words, had real actual power to them. Now, what James is saying here, too, our words as well can bless and curse. Our words, too, carry actual power in them. Now, not the kind of effectual power that God's words have. We can't create something ex nihilo. We can't create something out of nothing. Okay, only God can do that. So I can't say to you, you know, have a good day, and then you actually will have a good day. I don't have that kind of power. I wish I did. But the Bible does say, although we don't have that kind of, you know, effectiveness in our words, the Bible does say that human beings are made in God's image. 
And James here is saying our words, though not like God's, they, they do hold some kind of power to bless and to curse. It may not produce something out of nothing ex nihilo like God does, but it does have power to vivify, to intensify things that already exist. They can, in a sense, put clothes on the thoughts you're thinking and the emotions you're feeling. Your words can put clothes on the thoughts you're thinking and the emotions that you're feeling. Have you ever loved somebody in your heart, truly loved them, spouse, child, a loved one, feelings are there, but the second you actually speak them, the second you actually tell them that, I love you more than anything this world has to offer. All of a sudden, in that moment, you find the love that you have for this person sharpen just a little bit, just by you saying the words. It put clothes, it puts clothes on your feelings. Have you ever seen somebody come up in a funeral wanting to give a eulogy, right, a talk about the person that died and how much they meant to them. And at first, when the speaker comes up to the podium wanting to share, they're composed, they have it all together, you know. But as soon as they get, get behind the mic and they start saying the words about this person's life, about what, what they meant to them, they lose it. The emotions intensify, they choke up, they're not composed anymore. Words put clothes on your thoughts and your emotions. Our words aren't like God's. It doesn't carry ultimate power to bring things into existence out of nothing, but it still does carry some kind of real power to bless or to curse, whether yourself or others. And uh, some of you may know this. I think I've shared it before in, my, in a sermon or maybe not, but I was actually bullied quite badly in, uh, in middle school. And I was living in a boarding school in Singapore for a good three years. And being bullied at school is, is hard enough already. But being in a boarding school, meaning you live with them, so they come home with you, you can't escape them, it's, it makes it a little bit harder, a little bit more terse. And, you know, you're, if you're sitting here, middle school bullying is such a trivial thing, maybe to some of you who's never experienced it. But if you have experienced it, then you know. You know. Some of the words said to you, some of the words said about you, they really stick, don't they? They really make you believe things about yourself. They really make you feel things about yourself. They really change your sense of identity and your sense of value. Words are not just moral or immoral. They're not just kind or mean. They're not just good or bad. They can also truly bless and curse. They carry with it actual, real power. So, you see how effective James' argument is here? You wonder why there's a lot of infighting in the church, why there's so much division in the church? It's because we're playing with fire. We don't even know it. Be mindful of your words. It's volatile. It can shape people's paths, either yours or others. It's hard to tame because it displays our sin, and it carries with it actual real power to bless or to curse. So stop being so flippant about it. Okay, so 
How then can we grow to become uh, the kind of people who are more intentional about our words, who can control the volatility of our words, who can use our words to direct others to the proper path and use it to bless rather than curse? How, how can we become that kind of person? Well, la last point, our words can be redeemed. So I, I think the answer to that question is clear. How can we become that kind of person? Well, is by remembering all the above, is by remembering all that we talked about. So the next time you're in conversation with one another, the next time you choose to say words to your kids, the next time you're arguing with your spouse, the next time you're giving your employee feedback, the next time you're talking about your employee behind his back, remember what James said here. Your words, they're volatile. It can shape paths. It can display the worst in you and has actual power to curse or to bless. Remember that. Remember that next time your staff messes up. Remember that next time your child acts up. Remember that next time your friend makes a mistake. But another thing James reminds us here is that, yes, we can grow to becoming that kind of person by remembering all the above, but there's something else you have to remember beyond all that if you want your words to be truly redeemed. Let's go to verses 11 to 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He, he's saying here, look, Christian, you want to produce fresh water. Fresh water is, is analogous there to uh, uh, words that heal, helpful words. You want to produce fresh water, then here's what you have to do. You have to remember who you are. You are a freshwater pond. So why would you continue producing salt water? That's what, that's what James is, is trying to say. But some of us now are here hearing that and, and we're saying, but I'm also kind of salty. <laughs> I don't know how to reconcile that. You know, I've, I've been pretty bad with my words. I've not been using it in all the ways I'm supposed to, especially after reading this passage. How do I reconcile the fact that my words have been salty, but yet I'm called a freshwater pond? And to them, James says, the people in his time and, and to us here today, remember who you are. You are a freshwater pond. And you're like, how? How can I be freshwater pond when my words have been sinful? You know, I haven't been doing, using it well. Well, you are a freshwater pond because God said so. Remember earlier I talked about how God's word have actual power in it? How God's words can actually bring something into existence? How when God speaks, let there be light, light happens. Let there be vegetation, vegetation happens. What about his words that says, you are clean? How about those words? Are they just as effective? Yes, they are. How can we Christians be called by James as clean, fresh pawns when our hearts, as displayed in our words, are often sinful and ugly? How can we be called clean? Do you remember our call to worship that we read on the PowerPoint earlier, John 15, verse 3 to 4? Jesus said what? You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. When God speaks, it's not a suggestion. It happens. You are clean, and that is that. But how is that fair? How can Jesus say that when I'm filled with sin, when all I've done is wrong and bad and transgressions? How can he call me clean? How can he speak such a blessing upon me? The reason why Jesus can speak such blessings upon you is because, friends, on that cross, he took the curse 
himself. Jesus declared a word of blessing upon his people who can't stop their tongue from cursing others by taking the curse upon himself. On the cross, he was mocked with words. Untrue words were being said about him. Lies were being said about his identity, about what what he's done. He was cursed. Curses were spoken to him. And he was able, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, he was able to tame his tongue. And the one thing that came out of his mouth was this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A world of curses was put upon Christ so that he can bless you and declare you to be clean. This is your Savior. This is the one that's taken all of your sins and made you into a freshwater pond. How can we then continue producing salty words without being mindful of it? Remember who you are. Remember what I've done for you. Remember the word I've spoken over you and what it cost me to be able to say that to you. Don't be flippant and volatile with your words. Remember who you are. Don't shape bad paths for yourself and others through your words. Remember who you are. Display the new creature you are in Christ with your words, not the old self that's died with Christ on the cross. Remember who you are. You've been blessed by Christ who took your curse upon himself. So now use your words to bless others, not curse. Remember who you are. You are a fresh water pond. So let the words that come out of your mouth heal wounds, not cause them. And when you fail, which you will, which I will, when we slip up, remember who you are. You're a blessed child of God because the Son of God took all of your curses upon himself. Live as you are, as who you've declared to be, clean, forgiven, pardoned sinners through the cross of Christ. Watch your words. The direction of your life and the direction of other people's lives are affected by it. Watch your speech. It has real power behind it. And watch your tongue. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus when he purchased you and died for you on that cross. So use it to bless him for his glory. Let's pray. Father, what sobering words from James that undeniably causes us, I hope, to concede to the fact that I am a sinner. If I don't believe that, just look at how I've used my words. And Father, I pray that you give us soft hearts to acknowledge this word and this truth and give us rejoicing hearts that we may see Christ and what he's done for us and how he's taken all of our sins on that cross upon his own shoulders. And give us now the confidence to live on and and go to you and, and worship you and live out our lives as who we have been declared to be, freshwater ponds, Christians. Help us believe it when we fail. Help us pursue it because it's who we are. And remind us 
of the word. Let your word spoken upon us resound louder than any word this world may say or any word we may ourselves think about us. I pray, Father, for this mercy and for this grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.